Born and raised in a Chinese-Brazilian family, Betty Yang has a lengthy track record of consulting for global companies on go-to-market strategies in Brazil. She moved to the U.S. at a time when there weren't many links between Silicon Valley and Latin America, and so she helped build and strengthen them. It started in 2009, when she founded Brazil Innovators, scaling its network from zero to over 10,000 people. Two years later, she joined 500 Startups as a consultant before eventually taking on the managing partner role and, of course, the challenges of ecosystem development. Betty is a super connector who knows Brazil inside and out. As a global operator, she invested in the likes of Conta Azul, Descomplica, and Viva Real. Betty and I are catching up to talk about the role of networking in an entrepreneur's journey, the recent influx of capital in Latin America, and how founders can enter negotiations from a position of strength. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. How are you doing? So good, so good to have you on. I'm glad, I'm glad that we made this work. Uh, I know how busy you are being a new mom. So. No, thanks for the invitation. I'm looking forward. Yeah. I'm doing well, uh, learning how to be a mom. Totally. It's a process, right? What's been the biggest challenge so far? I think it's just like a ex- personal expectation. Like you feel like you should do something, but like you can never plan because baby is baby. <laughs> totally. I don't think that that feeling ever like totally goes totally. away. Like I have like, they talk about mom guilt also. Like that's something that I hear like my wife say and her, her friends. And there's like moments where you're just like, gosh, like I need to be doing more. It's just hard. There's no way around it, you know? And I mean, you got a big responsibility, you know, running a really important role at 500. How have you been able to balance the kind of personal and the, you know, the work stuff? Like that's challenging. I think when Nikki is really young, you don't really balance because like, sh- like she's crying, you cannot do other things, right? So yes, I'm exactly. like, I have to drop. I think it gives a lot of perspective because I, I'm like so workaholic. So like, I think it just gives you perspective. Like the baby's crying, the baby needs to be fit, like get fat right now. And then I'm like, okay, the rest can wait because I always have this thing like, oh, work cannot wait because like, if I'm not on top of it, like right now, it's going to be like chaotic, but like the chaos is like tame this little <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> baby at home, which is, it's like has more priority. Yeah, no, it's cool. It, it, it's funny how like things totally turn upside down in, in your world and it refocuses you in some ways and uh, it's all a balance and it's all a learning experience, right? Definitely. I'm glad to have you on. You know, I think that we've known each other now for like over a decade, which is crazy, right? Like, yes. And we've like shared cabs in Madrid and we've uh, you've hosted networking sessions in Sao Paulo and and you were an early investor in, in Viva. So it's cool that, you know, full circle that we've seen a couple cycles and it's cool to, to have you on the podcast. So welcome to uh, the Latitude Podcast. Ren, thanks for your invitation. Really excited uh, to be here and doing a lot of reflection for this past 10, 12 years <laughs> that you and I have been like very active uh, in the market with like different roles, but sometimes working much closer together, but really excited for like what you're also building for Latitude. So very excited to be here today. Thank you. Well, listen, you've mentioned before that the power of networking has played a huge you know, part of how you entered into the entrepreneurial space. Can you tell us that story? Just share with us more about how you view that. Yeah, I think um, network, it's the way that I translate it. It's almost like luck. Like you talk to any founder, very often they'll say like, oh, the luck came into like 
in my context, that's why I became like so successful, right? Of course, the founders need to be ready. They have to have the right mindset of all of it. But luck often is that very important component for them to, well, whether scale up or find an investor or find a customer. So I think when we think about networking, it's amplifying and designing the space for luck. So when you are with the right people, there is a lot more context for you to be successful, right? So I think one way to look at it, and then you were asking like, how does that play in the story that plays to the way that I look at it, is really how do we find the right network for the founders, right? It can be one or multiple networks so that it increases their chances of success. And I think that's so important, uh, particularly that comes very from my like inner self, because a little bit of, of context uh, is my parents are immigrants. So we first immigrated to Paraguay. So they first immigrated to Paraguay. So like being like uh, someone who like grew up in Paraguay to try to fit into the network of Brazil to later on fit into Silicon Valley, there's a lot of intentional thinking of how do you belong to a certain conversation? How do you come in and have a sit at the table? How do you come in and have a very relevant conversation, right? So I think the network is such such a powerful tool that I think every single founder uh, or individual should have at their um, availability or, or disposal because that's really like increasing their luck and being able to almost manipulate the luck component. We kind of call that at Latitude manufacturing serendipity is one of the ways that we kind of describe it. And I think that's what you're describing is the same. And do you think that like part of your like upbringing, given that you're like, you know, family of immigrants, I mean, you, I know you speak multiple languages, you speak, I think, Mandarin, you speak Portuguese, English, obviously Spanish. Do you think that that kind of upbringing forced you to like, okay, I got to figure out how to like make my way in here and, and you know, and, and how did that impact you? Yeah. I, I think it, it's interesting because very often it becomes part of your instinct, right? So it becomes a little bit of a second nature when I come into a new environment. It's being able to understand a different uh, language. Sometimes a language can even be like English or Portuguese. It's the same language, but there's a lot of like nuance in the interaction of the group, right? So I think naturally for me, it's very easy to understand like the the network or or maybe like we call it like the system of who might be like doing the like the super connection, who might be building like the resources and very quickly try to understand like, are there things that I can come in and try to further connect uh, those networks, right? Because I think on the ecosystem side, like really, it's really hard for like someone to own it, right? Like I think thinking more on the longer term and, and answering your question, I think it's so innate to like who I am. But at the same time, I think a lot of it is how do you make those networks a little bit more perfect? And then what's the role that each of us might play within within that? Yeah, it's a power. I mean, you're definitely, like a, I would say, like a super connector. And it's amazing what happens when you like, you know, I mean, even from the days of like building Brazil Innovators, right? Like back, go back in time, right? And there you are, you know, hosting these gatherings. You're kind of connecting, you know, being this big bridge between Brazil, founders and Silicon Valley. Uh, what were like the gaps that you were looking to fill at that time? When you, If you think back to bringing people together, because I, I remember going to those events. 
Yeah, I, it's an interesting question about gap uh, because sometimes you have an assumption, and then once you get started, that's that happens with all the founders. When you start, you're like, oh, maybe the problem is something else, or maybe the problem is much deeper. So when I uh, built Innovators, which is really like a network, I thought, oh, maybe it was just the bridge between Brazil and Silicon Valley is the component that's missing, right? So I thought that if I would design things, I would design a lot of the activation around the bridge to innovation, which is in Silicon Valley. After I got the the network started, actually what I realized that the gap was there was that actually there was a, a missing piece, which is the mindset, almost like thinking as a movement, right? Like when you think about the entrepreneurship today, it is almost like obvious, uh, like you should start a business failure is part of like the mindset or like collaboration is part of the mindset. But I think back in 2010, 2011, it wasn't like really that common culture uh, that's there. So I think starting innovators at the time was really trying to understand how do you help catalyze a movement that wasn't there, right? So I think the gap was partially the bridge because I think in any system when you have like the right input, you really augment the the network. But at the same time, you need to like get the right pieces at the beginning to make sure like people start thinking alike so that you form a community around it. So like later on was really forming the community that was driven to build innovation in Brazil. So I think it started more as as a bridge and later on it became more as a movement for entrepreneurship and innovation. I've heard you talk about the need to strengthen this kind of founders mentality, you know, among Brazilian entrepreneurs. How would you define founder mentality? Uh, I I also want to say like it's very different when I'm like referring 10 years ago and today I think maybe I'll just uh, make that sort of really clear I don't I think today uh, and I can uh, define more on like the founder's mentality uh, to it but I think today I don't feel like we need to create a movement I I feel like it's there and it's here to stay, like I think in Brazil, Latin America, it has such a strong component and has proven that uh, entrepreneurship, technology, venture is here to stay. So I, I, th- I don't think you need to like build that gap. I think that's in, like it has passed the, uh, like the inflection point and it's happening. And then answer your first question, uh, asking like, what is sort of founders uh, mentality? I think a very, very important component of the founders mentality is, uh, I think right before, I don't know if that's going to go into the session we talk about, it's like being balanced, right? It was like, you like, when you were saying like, oh, maybe I'm not, I wouldn't define myself being like really balanced. I think a little bit about every single founder is an obsession about something, right? Like you go to sleep, you wake up about solving an issue that you feel like, how come like the world functioned this way, right? Like I think certain things should be more efficient or certain uh, solutions should be there. And I think being a founder is this having that mentality, almost an obsession on solving uh, the issue. And then most of the time you're going to hear people saying no to you and you have the positive attitude to like normally is that crazy optimism that like, I don't know how the founders find it to be able to go through normally. And you probably know better than anyone else. And I know you also like talk about that in, in the book of the ups and downs uh, of the founders, right? So I think it needs to be like innate to the essence of human being. 
I agree. It's it's such a quality and characteristic of a founder. Switching gears a little bit, we, it's so different today when we look at the capital that's being invested in LATAM. The time when when we met, you, you were so early in the ecosystem, and there wasn't a lot of you know global capital coming in. But now there's a bunch of capital being poured into LATAM international investors. And we also have plenty of high caliber founders now, which is something that I look at the vintage of founders that are coming now. And I'm like, these people are so much more sophisticated than I was when I started. They're looking at cohort analysis before day one. And they're just they're just much more, I'd say, talented in a, in a lot of ways. How do you think the role of local investors and international investors kind of co-mingles? And what do you think the, the, the landscape will look like when you think of the local and international investors? Yeah, that's a great question. Maybe we do a little bit of analysis of capital. Um, just in general, in terms of asset allocation from the trillions of dollars uh, coming without talking about like international or like the, the native sort of capital, I think when you look at the trend where the world is heading to, the, the asset class that we sit in, right, like the venture asset class is, is going to get a lot of interest and coming large amount of sum of capital coming into early stage innovation technology in general, right? So I think maybe answering your question, which I think is important, is whether we think directionally there's going to be more capital or less capital, regardless whether it's international or the, the money sort of originally from Latin, right? So I think just in general, there's going to be a lot more money coming in in this space that we're operating in, in Latin America in terms of asset class. So with that, I think then there's a lot more potential competition. So like if the local investors don't want to invest, there's going to be enough capital for founders uh, to raise with outside capital. I think from a founder perspective, very often um, when you bring capital in, also it's important for you to think like, is there like a strategic component? So maybe some local capital would have some value add to it. I think there's pros and cons. Of course, with it, but I, I think sometimes there is value of having also sort of local investors. So I think just in short, money like will become a commodity and is becoming more and more of a commodity for like the best founders, I'm sure. Brian, if you go out and when you go out and raise money, there's like you, you have the option to decide who you want to get money from, right? So I think a lot of it is also whoever is holding that capital have the understanding of like Fast cash can be value add, right? They don't have to do anything as long as they are the first one to sort of sign the check. So I think for a lot of the local investors, maybe that uh, hasn't been that sophisticated in institutionalizing uh, the capital into venture is to understand really what's the risk that they're coming into and then almost like set up a little bit of the right mindset, right? I think the founders definitely are sophisticated. I don't think we, don't, we from uh, institutional investor that we have in, in Brazil and Latam, I feel like it has become more sophisticated. So like the VC funds are more sophisticated because they raise fund one, two, three, four, five. Like fund one, they will do things that you're like, oh my God, what is that? Like compared to Silicon Valley, what they've been doing. But now the institutionalized uh, VC money in Brazil has also, I feel like it's, it's much better, right? The question really is with angels, like what does it mean? I think ultimately for angels that are interested uh, in like coming in, I think there are sort of two ways to think, or for a large amount of capital that are coming, I think there are two ways to like 
do this. Like one would be maybe also deploy part of the capital into who is already experienced, right? Or who already owns that network, right? So what is, for instance, like putting money into like Latitude that is building like a network or a syndicate or however, or like a VC fund, because you can learn that much faster by someone who already like build the road ahead of you, right? So I think partially for like large family offices that are interested, of course you can do direct deals, but at the same time, I think it's really important to be able to fast track for the past 10 years sort of learning associated with it. And then just to add a little bit of component to it, for a lot of investors that might be interested in doing direct deals, I think sometimes the challenge is a little bit of like, they put too much money into like one single deal and they think like that single deal is going to become a unicorn. But in early stage, uh, just to set the, the the foundation to it, it's like even if you are doing that professionally and like in my case, we've been doing uh, investment for over 10 years and have really good like vintage fund one, two, three, four, really consistent. Like the risk and majority of the company is still going to fail. Like, over 90% of our portfolio, it's not going to be successful with it, right? So I think a very, very, very important component with the local investors is when you come in, it's also understanding the consequences and having the right mindset in coming into venture with it. Partially, it's maybe building your own portfolio, but I definitely recommend like it should be at least like 30 companies or like come into a fund uh, or instrument that has a large enough a portfolio with it. But I think it will be a very, because there's going to be so much money to it, there's going to be a very natural balance. If the local investor doesn't get sophisticated fast enough, uh, then naturally the outside capital is going to come in. Yeah, I've seen the, I would say overall, it's been very positive, all of the global investors, because it's elevated the game of the local investors, right? Like exactly. if you're if you're coming in and you're before, like I was catching up with, uh, you know, a few people this week about, about, you know, the his, historically what it was like, there wasn't a need to like rush to get a term sheet out. And because it's kind of like, there's a couple investors, we're kind of taking our time. We, we, I can't not, wait. You know, Why would I rush? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Now I think, which I think is like, I get to build a company again uh, right now, uh, you know, building latitude. And, and as I'm like kind of looking at the scene or in angel investing, and I'm like, almost envious of the other founders that I'm meeting and they're, and I'm like, you have no idea how hard it was to raise, you know, raise a, a series A round or a seed round um, because there just was the pool of investors was limited. I was fortunate to bring great investors on and, you know, and in kind of the seed in the series A and, and beyond, but not everyone had the luxury of having, you know, sophisticated investors from day one. So let's talk about just as we think about the VC landscape we're still seeing that, you know, women are very underrepresented in the VC world. And, you know, you, you've, you know, you're not like a brand new investor, like, you know, like, you know, maybe a decade ago when you're kind of starting out. I mean, you're like, you've, I, I remember like every time I see you, which is different because this is, the, the reality is different. But like every time I see you, it's like, you're like, oh, I'm in like Malaysia or like I'm headed <laughs> on to like, you know, like Southeast Asia on a, on a trip. Obviously now you've got, you've got your baby and it's COVID. So like, Maybe that's good for you, your life because you're able to like manage stuff globally because you do have investments in a lot of different places. But would love to get your perspective on, you know, how things have evolved and how do you think that we can expand the topic of diversity to, you know, include investors? Because we talk about diversity and founders, but really one thing that we always talk about is you got to put money in the hands of people that can write checks because that will then allow people to invest in people that care about diversity and, and prioritize that. So 
What's your general thought on how we can expand that topic on the investor side? Yeah, I think the first step uh, really is uh, put your money where your mouth is. Is that the expression? <laughs> is that okay? <laughs> so that was a good expression. You're like, what? Is that the one? <laughs> That's it. That's the one. That's the one. Don't That's worry. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't I like one of the things where I, I translate into Portuguese, like something that I say in English and it comes out. No, that's, that's the expression in English. You got it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think very often it's like, if you're uh, like starting a fund, always invite uh, in your investment team, other diverse or underrepresented, maybe that's a way, the best sort of terminology to put in for several reasons. Like one is you would, in the the in our industry is also where our network i think the first question you asked was around network right for investors like that's what can differentiate us that's what differentiated me for instance right like i had access to latin america when i got started that no one else had it and i had to sit at the table that i could deploy capital the way that i had to sit at the table was i was allocated two million and then say you can like after I show five deals, the founding partners said, like, you understand how to do investment. You can make that decision, right? And that gave me a lot of confidence because I wasn't in the industry at the time, right? So I think a lot of it is, it, it wasn't a lot of money either. I think that $2 million got us, like, really far. Luckily, I think the the portfolio that I built uh, for for the 500 Global was a good portfolio that like built to who, who I am, where I am today. But at that time, I wasn't given the the space, the power to do what I was doing. I would not be where I am today, right? So I think sometimes like a small allocation of the capital and trust goes such a long way. And I think the industry, and we saw that sort of firsthand with uh, 500, with the the, the context of uh, women and women have like voice and right. I think that's such an important movement that we're heading into. And I see more funds like bringing like co-founders that are uh, co-founding investment team members or elevating them to investment decision directly without second guessing however it is, right? So I think you answer it really correctly is it giving the, the, the decision right to women investors and very often starts with our investors that we call them like limited partners, right? I think raising money in Latin America it's still really, really, really hard for funds for like, I think what was hard for like founders is hard for funds because also you don't have like that many generation of, uh, of funds that's uh, been established. So I think also for whoever allocate large amount of whether it's pension fund or family office money also is to look at like when you are deploying your allocation, are you also allocating to women uh, general partners? I think that makes such a meaningful uh, statement. More importantly, whoever it's proven already by data, the women that control the money invest naturally more in women. And I think, I don't think it's like proactively doing that. It's just like natural. That's where our network is at. And if I'm like going to raise, I always try to find people who I feel like maybe I can relate a lot more to for however context that like how you feel empathy and you feel the, 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 the relation is right. Yeah. I mean, a big part of, uh, 
a big part of investing as I was, you know, talking, you know, just this week with my team is that like, there's a sales function to investing and yeah. empathy is such an important part. Like people want to do business with people that they enjoy, they appreciate, they feel like, you know, understands them and listens to them. And so that's something that I think that women have at a competitive advantage because they can, you know, connect better with women. And so I think that there's, we always talk about diversity at, at Latitude is like, it's an intelligent thing. It's a smart, yeah. it's a strategy. It's not a charity. It's a strategy because there's incredible opportunities. So You've invested in, in you know, companies, it does Complica, Conta Azul, uh, even, you know, you, you put a, ch- a check in the Viva back in the day. So you don't have to talk about me, but uh, what, what's the one quality of founders that you've backed, uh, you know, that you'd say, you know, that they have in common? Uh, like even Bruno, it was such a great pleasure. I want to at least start there that uh, we were allowed to come in uh, to, to your round. So I think answering your question on the the quality of the founder, I, I did mention a little bit on like the obsession, but maybe just to describe more of um, of what it is and how it looks like. Uh, for instance, with Scomplica, for those who don't know, like what Scomplica does, they do online uh, education. Uh, it started as like a test prep, everything online as uh, sort of a class. And sort of most recently, where they're heading to is like doing themselves certification. So they bought universities, right? So imagine like when we think about education space, right? The the quality of the founders and when the when we invest in founders is this capacity to reimagine how something is done differently, right? So when you don't have to talk to like, I think most people agree, like the way we go on education, especially with COVID, that's the online education, the online communication platform has like significantly transformed the way we absorb and uh, absorb, uh, not energy, also energy, but uh, information is so different from before sitting in a classroom, right? So I think it's just so, so, so powerful to see, for instance, like what Marco has done to say, okay, like when we started, it was like a test prep, but like now we're reinventing the classroom. We're reinventing the way that people learn and we do full certification for like, if you want to go to university to do like through Scomplica. So I think the, the quality of the founder really is this capacity to first like think big, reimagine the world. And like, it doesn't matter how hard it is. Like they was like, go in towards the direction of building the, the category winner. And, and I think maybe drawing like a parallel, we were joking a little like even Vahal, like when I remember when we came in, you told me like, oh, Vahal is like the third, like we like are just starting, the space is still really open, but your obsession to become like the biggest, like you made it happen, right? Like it was just a vision at the time, like, like, yeah, sure. It's just a vision, but no, it was such a powerful vision and the drive for execution that you were able like, like if I'm looking for apartment, like who doesn't know about like Viva Hell, right? Like you, you define the category of how we buy a property, for instance. Thank you. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a hard journey, but uh, I'm glad that we got to go on it together. Now, now um, one thing I want to, I want to think about, cause we talk about Brazil quite a bit but I think it's interesting and unique opportunity to have you on here because you have a pretty global perspective, right? Because, you know, you're leading 500, 500 LATAM, there's 500 global. And, you know, you now have a very impressive global portfolio. 
Talk a, a little bit more about how you see the global landscape, maybe in the context of where LATAM is, and just like, how have you been able to build a global portfolio? A lot of investors, like the idea of investing outside of Silicon Valley was like a crazy idea. Now it's all of a sudden becoming less crazy and more common. Uh, COVID accelerated that also. Um, you know, Silicon Valley isn't looking at its navel anymore the whole time. They're like realizing that there's a, a whole world out there. Talk about your, you know, how you built a global platform and what are the, the key elements to being successful expanding outside uh, across borders? Yeah. Um, so when I joined uh, 500, I, I did many of our first deals like ever in Brazil, our first ever deal in South Africa, our first ever deal in Spain, our first ever deal in Russia. Like literally the, those were my maybe like the first 20 deals I had to uh, figure it out. I think at the beginning, it was, of course, like coming a little bit from literally like on a plane <laughs> and I go on a, we had, we used to have something called like geeks on a plane where we land and then we try to understand like what's happening and pick some deals and do those like early stage investment. I think at the time, 20, 2010, there weren't investors that were interested in any deals that were outside of China and India. Like it was just like China, India, and like the rest of the world, like no one like wanted to even look at it. Right. So I think at that time that was like the best way that we could work around it. I think on the evolution on like building that, I think very often, like how do you build it? Very often you just like start picking companies to get things started Today, we are in a very different stage. So we built more of thinking like, how do we build this global platform? And I can talk a little bit about like what we mean by platform itself, but also the hyper-local component is super important because unless, because also answering your previous question, it's so competitive now, right? Like you would have the local investors, you would have all the other investors are interested in. So unless you you are so deep in the network to be with the founders, that's like a little bit of like the differential complement. So the way that we're trying to like build the stack is having a hyper-local sort of team member component added to the global platform. So maybe just break those two pieces in like with more like story or more specificity. On the global platform, I think there are a few components. One, it's market access, right? I, in the ideal world, like because I've been building what we call internal, like like ecosystem team, the way that we look at it is like what do founders need in the early stage? They very often need like customers. So if a founder starts in Brazil, I want them to have instant access to a potential customer in Indonesia, for instance, if that solution is available. So I think one component that we're really trying to lay foundation on is market access so that any founder can be mobile from one place uh, to the other. I think the second very important layer uh, that's there is like the tools and education, right? Like today you mentioned like in LATAM, the company's a lot more sophisticated. But for instance, about two years ago, I started managing everything that we're doing in the Middle East. So Middle East, maybe it's similar to LATAM six years ago, but it's accelerating really quickly. So a lot of it is how do we provide uh, the, the education tools and also the network for them to be able to accelerate and scale up their business. And then the the I think the commodity really is the capital, right? I think 
without the capital, like education or other things I mentioned before, like money goes a really long way. Uh, put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> so I think those three components, uh, like the starting with market access, uh, network plus tools plus capital, build out what we look at, what the global platform is. But it's really, really, really important to have the local team. So that's why we also have the 500 LATAM team uh, that is like, on the ground, working on the deals directly, but it comes from the global with a hyper-local component. One challenging thing I can imagine, I'm just kind of thinking here, is you know, if you've got like local a local fund and a global fund, how do you balance kind of like because they're 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 funds that are managed by different people, and so you you've got, you've got like you know someone building the local fund, and it's hard to have like shared economics across multiple funds because it's just it's a complicated thing. So how do you how do you balance the I'm just thinking out loud like that seems really very challenging. I mean how many different funds do you have? You have you have multiple funds, right? And is it are they all regionally focused or um, how is it set up at 500? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. I think it depends uh, which evolution uh, you ask. I think in internally the the a little bit of the answer to it is that we see way more deals than the capital that we have. I think the moment there's way more capital, then we're going to fight for the deals. Or maybe like yeah. it has a shift at the transition. So today, we see a crazy, crazy, crazy amount of deal flow coming into to 500. We don't feel like, oh, maybe there's too much money. We don't know from which fund we allocate with. And it really changes because in Southeast Asia and LATAM, like Spanish LATAM, it's actually our fund three already. So we really trust the fund managers. Like they don't really need to ask us. Like they know much better on like what they're doing. But let's say if we are in Africa, like we don't have, don't, not that they're not good investors, just like not, there's no one that we work for so, such a long period of time that like it's easy for us to give them like full space to run, right? So like in markets that we haven't operated that long, we come in and we try to invest more from a global fund perspective. Like when I'm thinking about like a building a fund uh, for Africa, for instance, I'm trying to design in a way that it would cover sort of pan-regionally or should I cover more like regionally and then later on build layers. So I think the funds have its evolution. So answering your question is there, it's, it's a little bit of a moving piece, but it comes down to really the partnership, right? I think when you have the right partnership, you can find the 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 what we think the fair component is, and and of course, five hundred build like several funds. Um, some of them, some of the fund managers stay with us until today since they started, and some of them feel like they wanted to go on their own and build their own fund because they didn't find the economics sort of working with everyone. So I think it's like answer your questions is. We don't have a one-size-fits-all. I wish I had, like, this should be the answer. But I think ultimately it's working with the people you wanted to spend at least 10 years of your, <laughs> which is much longer than most of the marriages, I heard. Yeah, yeah, it's true. That's true. Double-clicking on a, on a couple things, because you guys are, have been innovators, right? Like, you, you've, when 500 started, like, different model, like, you know, global expansion very early, which is, it was kind of a crazy idea. It's kind of like if you think about the vintage of founders, it was rare to like expand outside of Brazil. And now you have, you know, companies like Jim Pass or Rappi that are like, you know, regional or like Kavak that's like in the Middle East and Turkey, not like in the Middle East. Like that's 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 insane. Like that's totally different. And so 
you know, I think capital is allowed for that one. And then, you know, there's other accelerants. I think, you know, expanding in kind of the COVID area where there's remote and, you know, these other things, like I probably facilitated that. What, what do you think the next wave of disruption will be? Because, you know, you guys have been disruptors. Now you're kind of like, I wouldn't call you incumbents, uh, even, though that's a compliment, even though that's a compliment, right? But you've built a pretty big platform now. What is the thing that every, you know, to quote kind of Andy Grove, only the paranoid survive. What is the thing that makes you paranoid about, gosh, we, got, we have to like really rethink what we're doing here. And like, how do we stay ahead of like making sure that we don't get caught up in like getting comfortable? You know, it's so funny. Like we had the partners meeting less than a month ago. It was like three weeks ago in uh, in Dubai. And we literally were discussing, are we an incumbent or are we not an incumbent? We listed all the names of like the new up and coming. And of course, Latitude came in like, oh, what if Latitude like disrupt us completely, right? So I think you are asking the question that is really, really, really top of mind for us. I think a little bit of like the the drive for us is is just thinking like one thing that we've been discussing a lot internally how we get like much better for instance is what's our specific view and investment thesis around like the the web3 like I think right now everyone's like, oh, because we've done so many things successful, do we launch something? Do we launch this because someone launched something? I think it's understanding really like where the market is heading and then internally thinking how do we allow initiatives to thrive without thinking too much of an infrastructure that don't let sort of new ideas, new people to come in, right? So we really are going through like a rethinking, a restructuring to allow individuals to come in and thrive without like being too corporate-y. Uh, I think I think a lot of it's in the mindset and the the continuous people that we bring in. So I think partially it's also thinking like, who is the next generation? Like I'm old at 500, right? I wanted to bring in people who can like think differently that and think and then maybe give my way to them as well. So we started to really think about like the next 10 years and it comes down to people that we bring in, especially in the industry that we're in. Of course, partially uh, one of our key partners actually is our uh, Santiago, who is our partner from our Latin fund. He's a developer from Build. So we're also thinking a lot like it has to have a very strong like technology component to everything we're building. Like we have to move beyond uh our limitation of human beings. Yeah, I mean, like any industry, like I've been recently thinking more about the kind of the VC landscape. And just so just so I'm clear, like my ambition is not to build the 500. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, the, the evolution of what we're building started as a community and then we listened to the community. Now we're going to be building a lot of software products for founders. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we'll probably deploy some capital too, but... I highly doubt that, you know, how much money does 500 have under management now? Like a, like a, a couple billion or something or a billion yeah. plus or what 1. is it? 1.8 billion. 1.8 billion. So like 180 times larger than us uh, uh, to state the numbers uh, publicly here. Yeah, I think we have like- But the new generation builds what we build in 10 years in two years. It's incredible how quickly things are changing and escalating. Like yeah. I feel like the fact that I'm like so focused in some, which I think is important, like building the platform that we build, a lot of things that we missed this past two years, right? 
So I feel we have to always look ahead. And then every two years, like it can, it can happen so quickly. Yeah, no, things do like the speed of change is, is, is so accelerated. And, uh, well, I think that the ultimately, you know, kind of the rising tide lifts all boats. And I think for, for, if anything, like if there's a winner, it's, it's the founders because, you know, investors are more professionalized, you know, what, what you've been able to do. And I think in LATAM 500 has done a great job. You know, I talked to, to Didier sometimes and, and I had Cesar, you know, one of the old, old school, yeah. you know, 500. <laughs> He was on the podcast and, and Santiago also is doing a, a great job. So it's fun to, and we've actually co-invested in a few things together. So I think that's, uh, you know, that's kind of the mentality we have is the rising by uh, rising tide lifts all boats. And so I think we can learn from each other. And at the end of the day, the founders are the ones that, that win. So wrapping up here, um, you know, I would love to get your kind of your, your take on, you know, what's next for you, you know, at that, at that meeting, not to, you don't have to share all the details because it's your, but like, yeah. what was the, what was the conclusion on if you're an incumbent or are you, you're the innovator? Because I mean, I still think that 500 has been, been innovating, you know, for quite some time. And, you know, I think that everyone's always looking to reinvent themselves. Um, so what would be, you know, what, what's the, what's the conclusion about what the next you know couple of years look like? You mentioned Africa, like talk about, you know, these other, these other rising markets as Chris Schroeder would say. Yeah, I think the natural evolution is to cover the rest of the world. I think that's a little bit of the the like almost like business as usual for us to finish a little bit of homework that we started in in the in emerging market. I think what's next for us is uh for people who build funds, the fund structure is very strict, which is like you raise capital and then there is like a management fee in terms of the business model. There is the specific thing that you can do in the mandate of that fund and now how the carry is distributed, right? So when you see what Sequoia has done, what Andreessen has done, they are moving away from the very traditional structure of funds. And I think for us being the platform that we are, we see like so many things that we could be doing that we can today uh, on like registering sort of differently from like the venture capital component because the structure holds a t very tight into what we can do. We can do services, uh, education services. We can like run platform, of course. We can do investment into that structure. But for instance, if we wanted to launch something like completely related to fund of funds, or debt or secondary or build like a pre-IPO sort of instrument or whatever it is, like it, it has a lot of restriction on how we build it. Like we'll need to build out like a closed end fund that will do A and B because our original fund is, has like one of our fund is like regulated with the VC component, right? So I think actually just thinking what structure will allow us to uh, be more flexible uh, to it, and then I think personally, which I think uh, uh, as a sort of associated, I feel like I've been with the organization ten years. Being able to invest and like build ecosystem—that's my like bread and butter. I know what to do and everything. But I like us to like start thinking. Like we we launch the initiatives with ESG internally, but I think we need to think less of like ESG 
thinking as a risk mitigation. Like every single conversation you go into ESG is risk mitigation. We'll have to do it because we don't have one at risk. But I really believe like there is something that we can build. I don't want to say the word impact because it scares a lot of people, but like in the direction of alignment of mission and values that I think can create a lot of wealth within that alignment, right? So I, I wanted to start dedicating a lot of my time thinking about mission alignment. What would be an example of that? How could you exercise that? Yeah, that's a, a very good question. So I, I thought uh, about it. So today, around 2% of the total wealth goes into sort of impact, right? Like, what should be 2%? Why, like, what should you do to create maybe like 10% of the capital to go into that? So I think there are some instruments that are pretty obvious that you can do. You can do, for instance, like if we set up a fund of funds that say, hey, like if your fund has... 10%, I can allocate 10% of wealth to do that. Then that, that way you replicate more people looking at the impact. But I think the impact measurement needs to be different from how it is today. So a little bit of context is we, in the Middle East, I raised money with very, very institutional capital that like requires like beyond like the, like what they wanted to see in the ecosystem. I think there are a lot of ways for us to, to measure something other than capital or the way that we traditionally look at the impact. So I think partially it's it's broadening the 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 understanding of what to measure and continue measuring like the return with it. Right. So today we use some of the portfolio uh, companies, our B Corp, for instance, right? So that's like one way that you have the certification, but still the the universe of that is still quite limited. And I think if we proactively talk to the founders when they're coming to the program on how important, what is on diversity, on governance, on like the impact component, they could start building their own baseline and improve upon that. But like today, like no one asks, it's not measured whatsoever. And we have zero ask, zero influence. And I feel like in early stage, the, the work that we do, we have such a powerful tool to accelerate uh, the mindset and, and the direction of it. I have one last question on structure because you'd mentioned Sequoia and Andreessen, uh, has, you know, previously about how they've changed their their structures. Can you explain a little bit more about what what the change they made and what the benefits that you interpret uh, that give them kind of the the potential to to do exactly what with the, with those adjustments? Like I know Sequoia is like an more of like an evergreen fund. But like, would love to hear your interpretation because you know I'm not an investor really. I'm like a pretend investor, and so I don't. I, I haven't dug into any of these things, and and I'm you know I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think maybe I can speak a little bit like more with how like we do it, and then like because I think they would have like different uh, reason uh, to do it. As far as I know, for instance, like I know Andreessen like uh, did the the IRA thing like in the past. There is the. Normally, if we do that, like if we also decide to do it, there are a lot more compliance uh, component that we need to. Is IRA thing is what? Yeah, exactly. There's a lot more like compliance thing that we need to abide by, which makes it like super complicated because the VC has a special. For the benefit of the audience and for me. What is the IRA? Yeah. So uh, normally like the all the VC funds are regulated by the SEC, right? And especially the U.S. funds. So I think it depends, like, if you're not, like, 
in Brazil, you will be regulated by the CVME, for instance. So there are things that you can do and you can't. So the VC funds have like really good is exemptions that we could like invest in the companies as long as 80% of our deals are within like the VC component. The 20% will have a little bit of flexibility. But let's say we wanted to use that 20% flexibility and the 20% flexibility that we do, we invest in, we used to do a lot of like investment in other funds, for instance, right? But today, if I wanted to invest over 20% of my, that special sort of allocation, uh, of money, I, I really can. So if I want to buy secondary, if I want to do fund of funds, if I want to do like something completely different from my investment thesis, I really cannot do that. It's not only because my investors allow or don't allow to do it. It's because we are regulated within a very constrained component of the VC. So when we ask for like the special permit that will allow us to hold tokens, for instance, that will allow us to do in much bigger sort of uh, aggressive way that, but we will be, there's a lot of compliance component that we'll need to sort of work through. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah. I, I it's something I haven't really thought of like, as we, we have like a little rolling phone on angel list. So like, I haven't even got into the the technicality of like the structure and, and, uh, but I imagine you must have a pretty large team around compliance and because you guys have so many different funds and they're, you know, geographically spread out. And so, um, you know, you probably know more about that than, than you wish you knew. Exactly. I think that's a great way to, to put it. I think we unfortunately had to like, but I think it's part of the business, right? It's part of the complexity. I think it is a pretty complex business when you think globally, but at the same time, it provides the opportunity for us to build on what we've built today. That's awesome. Well, well listen, uh, really a pleasure to connect with you and grateful for your support over the years and yeah, excited to potentially do more stuff together and of course, that. like, you know, happy to be a resource in anything you need. And congrats again on the baby. Uh, little Nikki <laughs> is uh, a lucky, lucky little, little one. So, uh, parabéns. Obrigada. Obrigada. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast with Betty Yang, managing partner of 500 Startups. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like her. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.